Welcome to Absolute Destiny, a podcast. I'm Autumn. And I'm Chesney. And this is a show where we watch Revolutionary Girl Utena and review it. Today, we are not reviewing an episode. We have gotten a significant amount of mail from you, the listener, and a lot of it is about Choo Choo, not going to lie. Um, that the egg episode brought a lot of you out of the woodwork and I love that. And so today we were just going to go through them because there's enough of it that we can't just like tack this onto the end of an episode. So we're just going to go through all of it. Plus this gives us a nice lighthearted episode before we dive into her tragedy, which is one of the two episodes that everyone knows absolutely gut you um so looking forward to that <laughs> and plus choo-choo just deserves his own fan mail so oh absolutely this is totally you know He's, totally he is fun. the best boy yes <laughs> so our first one comes from liza liza writes hi autumn and chesney i was just listening to your episode about their eternal apocalypse and your discussion of the first akio car sequence got me thinking and i wanted to share this is only my second watch through of the show and I haven't really participated in the online fandom. So please forgive me if I'm just repeating something others have already said, but better. Um, I've read through your email. You are not repeating anything, Liza. Let's dig into this. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about the line, I reveal the end of the world to you now as well, that Akio says to each duelist. The first time I saw the show, I thought he was just admitting to each duelist that he was the end of the world. But while listening to your conversation, I got to thinking about how the phrase might interact with the analogy of the egg in the student council chant, and what we learn in the Black Rose arc about the closed nature of the school and the kind of pocket dimension where time does not pass. So if we take it to mean that the world equals the egg equals the school, which is also a place where people are trapped in time and do not mature, then the school is childhood and end could refer both to an end in both space and time. So a physical boundary or an end to a stage of life. The end of the world could refer to the world outside the school. I've always assumed the road goes away from the main campus or at least gets close enough to see the past the boundaries from the scenes in later episodes. But on a metaphorical level, the school is a place of eternal childhood. Then the end of the world means the end of childhood, i.e. the moment of growing up. And for many of us, the moments of growing up coincide with leaving school, either leaving high school for college or leaving college for the real adult world. So here, I think they're driving away from the school and Akio is giving them a glimpse of what it would mean to leave a Tori, to leave childhood behind. And the kids are getting a glimpse of the adult world that has been hidden from them while they're trapped in the quote unquote egg. And they don't like what he shows them. Because, of course, for Akio, adulthood equals sex. And to him, sex is just a vehicle ha, for exerting <laughs> power over others through violence. So for the kids, this view of the adult world results in them deciding that in order to protect themselves, they must become the ones with power. Akio shows them a world that is full of violence and cruelty, and they learn that when they break the world's shell and leave the safe egg... They can't trust anyone, and the only way to be safe is to be the one with power, and so they resume fighting each other. The progress in understanding and cooperation from the previous arc is lost. It's also interesting to me that the previous arc, they were all hurt by someone they trusted, who took their heart sword from them in a moment of vulnerability. 
but they didn't have the same reaction as they do after the car ride with Akio. I don't know what that means. Something about responses to trauma and coming together to support each other versus turning on each other. Maybe Akio wasn't happy with the way they responded to the trauma that he and Mikage put them through, so he decided to try again with a more direct approach. Anyways, I love your podcast. I can't wait to keep listening. Thanks. That's a lot to think about. And I <laughs> I, I love it. Yeah. I never, like, as soon as uh, you were describing the eggshell being like a both metaphorical and literal boundary of the school, I was like, I never thought of it that way. But that's absolutely, I think, what the student council was referring to in their chant, even if they don't realize it themselves. Like, the boundary of the school is an egg that keeps them locked in time forever. And they're talking about, we have to break the eggshell, but I don't think in the early episodes, they even know what the hell they're talking about. Oh, they admit as much. They, they yeah. say in those early episodes that they don't quite know what the power to revolutionize the world is. Right. They just know that they want it. Yeah. And then to your point of, traumatic things happen to them they're shown violence adult violence and they're shown the the quote-unquote real world adult world uh and then also violence it doesn't have to be in the adult world but um and then they just retreat back to the shell i mean i don't think we've heard this made me think about this i don't think we've heard the student council's chant in quite some time and i can't help but wonder if it's connected like you say like they saw what happens when you crack the eggshell and they're like, nope. <laughs> yeah, we definitely have not heard it in quite some time. And the last time we did hear it, it was Nanami's alternate version of it. Mm -hmm. Because Toga was taken off the board for the entire Black Rose saga. So it was all the way back in the first arc when we were getting him leading them in the chant. And so when he comes back, he has his whole car monologue instead. And so now he is, you know, helping Akio shepherd them through this revelation, as it were. Uh, he has a different relationship to like this idea of power and what it means to to win the dueling game. I really love your point, Liza, about the idea of uh, of power. And the idea of being the one having the power as a means of security. Because I think even without trauma, folks go through that of realizing like, that, like that's part of growing up and becoming an adult is like realizing that the responsibility is on you now. And so you need to be capable of doing all the things that you need to do to keep yourself safe and healthy and happy and all the rest. Like, no one will do it for you anymore unless you are the abuser in an abusive relationship. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so, yes, I, I agree with you that Akio shows them his version of what he thinks adulthood would be. And for them to retreat back to Otori makes sense because Akio's version of adulthood is warped enough that he retreats back to Otori Academy. Yeah. And so if you picture a world in which Akio grows the fuck up and leaves, all of this changes. 
but they're trapped in a world that he's manipulating. Well, him and Anthe. We don't know like where the, the line is between the two of them in terms of power yet. Um, but like clearly his vision of adulthood is terrifying. Um, and so it either scares them into wanting power, like you say, or it scares them back into the shell. Um, in both cases, they return to Atori and redouble their efforts to win the dueling game. Excellent letter. I just, I still, I cannot stop thinking about the whole of Otori Academy just being an egg. <laughs> and like, just a literal eggshell over the entire boundary of the school. So with the metaphor of the egg, you know, again, this show doesn't do anything accidentally. Everything is on purpose. If you think about an egg itself, at a certain point, it has to hatch or else it becomes rotten and dies. And Akio has refused to hatch and therefore has become rotten. And I think the same happens with just about any adult that chooses to stay there or refuses to leave, rather. We see that with Mikage coming back. Yeah. I was he just going to say kills a hundred people. Yeah. I was just going to say. <laughs> <laughs> like, I will say this. Akio rapes people, but Mikage murders them. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I hate to be cavalier about it, but like, you can heal trauma. You can't heal death. <laughs> nope. So, like, clearly... Akio's dragon is uh, worse than him on at least that level. <laughs> <laughs> as far as we know, Akio hasn't murdered anybody. As far yeah. as we know. <laughs> right. <laughs> he may have been like complicit in everything that goes down in uh, Nomuro Hall, but he didn't light the torch and, and set the place on fire with a hundred boys inside. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. He's not a literal mass murderer. <laughs> so the next one we have is from Tumblr user Nothing Suspicious in there. Nice. And they write, uh, it's always fun to listen to your podcast. And since I just finished your Nanami's egg episode, I thought I would share my pet theory on Choo Choo and Anthe in that one. In case you find it interesting in any way. Shrug emoji. Yes, we do find it interesting. But anyway, uh, <laughs> sorry if there's any spoilers. I don't remember everything I've written, but it's in here. And so they linked to a Tumblr post from about four years ago in which they go through and talk about pretty much exactly the same theory of like Anthe's speech about elephants and death and then the, the conversation about reincarnation all kind of hint at the idea that Choo Choo is reincarnated and that it also implies something about Anthe is reincarnated. And so the conclusion they push toward is this idea that this nearly coincides with um, the change in how the sword of Dios is drawn. It's no longer drawn from Anthe's heart. It's drawn from Utena's. So this reincarnation is also a change of heart 
for Anthe and reflects the change that's already going on. And so like, as the person who quote unquote owns Anthe's heart, Utena, um, now it's on, t- on her to bear the sword as opposed to Anthe because her relationship to this role is changing. Um, and her love for Utena is replacing her love for Dios. Oh. I will link to this uh, Tumblr post in the description so that you can see it uh, for yourselves. It's a bit too long to just like read fully on here. Um, But yeah, a lot of the same ideas that we had been kicking around in that episode of like, it's not necessarily Chuchu giving birth to something. It is Chuchu being reincarnated and what that implies about Anthe's heart and Anthe's mind. Yeah. I mean, it's been a while since we recorded that episode, but I can't quite remember if we talked about, it being a literal incarnation or more of a metaphorical one for Anthe. Um, either way, it is kind of both because if you consider Choo Choo to be like the quote unquote real life embodiment, <laughs> <laughs> he's he is living in the Otori Academy world. So um, it is both literal and metaphorical because you have Choo Choo literally going <laughs> process even if anthe herself is not yeah anthe's metaphorically going through it right although that would also be funny to see just i just love finding out that like someone else's brain is working on the same wavelength about that episode (laughs) (laughs) yeah um and since this person um since they, they wrote it four years ago i want to give them credit for this idea um Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, and yes, I will link that in the description so other listeners can, can read it as well. So on that same topic, Hannah writes in, Hey, Autumn. Hey, Chesney. How do you each imagine Choo Choo comes to be? What events happen before Choo Choo is within the egg during and after? What do you think about Choo Choo showing up to the tower already clothed in his Akio earring and girl's uniform tie? <laughs> well okay so if we're gonna do this we're gonna do this um we never see another of his species so it's unclear how uh how this happens but there are egg-laying species that do not require two sexes in order to reproduce um so it may just be that uh, Choo Choo is capable of, of laying eggs that hatch into new Choo Choo's. Absolutely hilarious to think about. And if you're referring to like what event triggered this, <laughs> I do like the idea in theory that Anthe's heart is just changing overall, even if it's um, because Choo Choo in our theories represents Anthe's subconscious mind more so than her conscious one. So even if the change of heart is just subconscious, it's still enough to trigger this metamorphosis. I see it, even though it is an egg, I see it less like an egg and more like a caterpillar going into a cocoon, you know, like that kind of metamorphosis. See, 
you're over here thinking of this on like that higher spiritual level. I'm over here like, does Choo Choo fuck? <laughs> you know what, Autumn? We have different priorities. <laughs> oh. So, <laughs> Hannah, um, as for your second question about uh, Choo Choo having Akio's earring and a girl's uniform tie, I have never paid attention to that juxtaposition before. Yeah, I didn't pick that out either. I feel like I should have, and I just missed it. I'm over here making memes of uh, Choo Choo being just like Kyube from, uh, from Madoka, and just missed the subtext of, oh, he has the same earring as Akio. Yeah, I totally missed that too. This one, I, I'm going to sit with this for a second. It's kind of blowing my mind of like, um, if because like we've been thinking of Choo Choo as like Anthe's familiar or Anthe's emotional state or Anthe's insert whatever uh, associated thing. Um, and now I'm just like, what if he's a little bit of both? Or like, what if because he's Anthe's familiar, he also incorporates aspects of Akio because of the place that Akio occupies in her life. Like her subconscious can't help but incorporate Akio into whatever coping mechanism she comes up with because Akio, for all his awfulness, is also the only true pillar in her life that is secure. Like this dovetails a lot with early childhood attachment traumas where like the person who you are relying upon for safety is also dangerous to you and you have to find love and attachment in an environment that is also fundamentally unsafe. So like on that level, it makes sense that like her form of protector also takes on aspects of the person who is hurting her. Yeah. I was trying to see because I was like, did he have that tie before or was it just after he did have it before um, autumn? I just sent you an incredible piece of fan art that I saw when I was trying to look this up. Um, incredible. 10 out of 10. Uh, it's Choo Choo with a gun. <laughs> okay, this is going on the Twitter, like, right now. <laughs> oh, no, I texted it to you. I'm posting on the Twitter right now. Oh, good. <laughs> Shout out to, uh, hang on, hang on, hang on. Shout out to Crab Rangoon Lover on Tumblr for this. Absolutely <laughs> incredible. But yeah, all of that was just, uh, a wondrous rabbit hole spurred on by me trying to figure out if Choo Choo always wore the tie, the girl's uniform tie or not. He did. <laughs> he does. <laughs> but yeah, I never would have. I don't think I on this first watch through of this series. I don't think I ever would have noticed that the earring is like Akio's earring. So next we have one from Naomi, who also writes in about Choo Choo. I, like I said, um, that episode brought a lot of you out, and I love this. Um, hey, hey, so I think Chesney's theory about Choo Choo is completely accurate. Ikuhara had an interview for Mawaru Penguin Drum, where he talks about how penguins are symbolic of the si siblings' inner workings. I believe the same is very much true for Choo Choo. I would love to hear you guys chat about the significance of a monkey being representative for Anthe. Like, 
Why is Anthe specifically represented by a monkey? Hmm. Also, thanks. Thanks for your vote of confidence. Appreciate it. Um, and for writing in. Why is he a monkey slash monkey mouse? <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> I I have a hard time seeing Shuchu as just a monkey. Yeah, me too. He's a He's just a hybrid. I mean... If you, but if you look at it in that context, if you analyze it as a hybrid, then it would have to speak to Anthe's feeling split between two worlds, right? Or split between two um, phases of being, uh, two entities, two different types of things. Uh, and honestly, this does kind of go back to the the tie and the earring now that it's forming, taking place and forming in my mind. Because if you look at it like that, the tie can represent like her schoolgirl side of her, the part of her that is a child who goes to school um, and who is an attendant and blah, blah, blah. And then the earring uh, could be representative of more of her Rosebride role um, and the, the role that she has to play with or because of Akio um, with that. So that's, if you want to think of why Choo Choo is the way he is, both in dress <laughs> and then in form, then it, I would think, would represent that hybrid nature that Anthe also possesses. It, because we see this duality through in her throughout the entire series. Um, we literally just saw it in the last episode where... On one hand, she genuinely cares for Utena. And on the other hand, she schemes with Akio. She has like these big brain, almost villainous moments. Yeah, like if I had to like put it down to anything, I would say the fact that a lot of her stuff comes out as like mischief. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um so both like monkey and mouse kind of fit with that. Also just the way that like, I would think of her as being mousy. Yeah. Um, and especially in the beginning, like the timidity that she shows. Yeah. But I don't, I'm not like fully familiar with symbolism associated with monkeys as far as like Japan specifically, um, or India. Because I think, like, as a mixed-race character, um, that would be important as well. Like, I know that there are racial, like, bigoted imagery in America around that. I don't know what that would be in in Japan. Like, I don't know if that same stuff exists in Japan. Um, I know. I mean, I know that racism exists in Japan. I just don't know, like, what the symbolism is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so I can't like dive too deep into that one, except to like acknowledge that if you're an American viewer watching this and see that, like I get it. I, I get the concern there. <laughs> um, you know, those images have been used to belittle and hurt people for a couple centuries. Um, and so I don't know if that's what's at work here. I know that other fans have written in the past about the the fact that 
the two darker skinned characters on the show have the most malign intent mm-hmm. on display. So um, I I don't I genuinely don't know whether there is baggage here that like we just aren't aware of. Right. Yeah. And honestly, like we're just not the best people <laughs> to be having that conversation. Right. Um, and I will acknowledge that. And um, that's just is what it is. Yeah. As far as like the commentary about Moaru Penguin Drum, though, I'm currently watching that show with Carly right now. And yes, like that connection is very clear <laughs> in that show about um, about the boys. And I'm sorry, Nichan is just so pervy. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Which I guess that implies something. Um, although we never really see it play out that way from the boys. It's always like the subtext of what the penguin is doing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Anyhow, thank you, Naomi, for, for, uh, for your question there. And uh, the insight about like Ikuhara's interview on penguin drum. Our next one comes from Rosemary. Hi, I'm a bit behind on the show and I'm just finishing the black rose arc and had some thoughts on the stopwatch. The idea you present of the student council having maybe been there for longer than it seems makes a lot of sense to me. I think that a reason Mickey might be clued into the fact that something is happening is because of Kozue. I think it makes his whole thing about wanting to be kids with her again and getting bitter and jealous as she has experiences that are considered quote unquote rites of passage for teens makes more sense with the idea that she might literally be aging faster than him. Maybe he has only been there a couple of years, and the time difference is just now starting to catch up with him and Kozue. I think your show is great, and I'm working on my own rewatch currently. So, Rosemary, um, I have never considered this theory before. <laughs> I've never even like <laughs> thought of something like this. Um, but you're right. Like She does seem to be going through rites of passage that Mickey isn't. I'm not sure what to make of that. I, I like your theory. Um, Chesney, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I agree with you in that Mickey very obviously um, clings to his childhood and the like rose-colored glasses version of that, right? Um, I think that's interesting as well. I honestly, it would make sense if Kozue is more willing to grow up and experience these things. So she is actually aging faster. It'd be interesting to see if she actually like leaves Otori Academy or not, because she doesn't really seem like she has as much of a stake in staying I think she would want to go experience the real world and Mickey would be the one that would be left behind. But I don't know if we ever see that. (laughs) I think it's interesting that Kozue is pushing herself through these rites of passage as a means of hurting Mickey. And so there's a part of this that I think their divergence is both necessary and part of what's keeping them there. Because, like, they came in as twins. And, like, we see it from their bedroom, from their cups, from their 
the slices of their childhood that we see that like these are twins who are so-called like twinned in that they were raised side by side as identical kids. <laughs> um, yeah. As opposed, like there are parents who, when they raise twins, deliberately separate them in order to make them like diverge earlier and become separate people earlier. Um, but I've just as often seen uh, twins grow into adulthood, leading very similar lives. Sometimes, like the efforts to separate them backfire. Like my mom and her twin sister, they were separated very young and then ended up working at like the same company. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like as far as like Mickey and Cosway go, I I think that this these rites of passage are like a really interesting um, way of viewing it in that Mickey seems to be the one who's trapped in childhood more so than Cosway. But the way Cosway is going about so-called growing up isn't about um, having these experiences for her own sake. They're just to grind Mickey's gears. Like it's still happening in relationship to one another instead of independently. So I think like, Rosemary, I think you have like a good point about the role their divergence might play in um, Mickey's perception of a Tory Academy. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for writing in. So we actually have another one from Rosemary. Oh, um, sweet. Yeah. Uh, hi, I was listening to the bit about the Shadow Girls being aliens and I had some thoughts. Excellent. I am so here for this. Uh, <laughs> Same. Let's bring in the tinfoil hats. Let's go. <laughs> As we all put on our tinfoil hats. Okay. One of the main purposes of science fiction can be to offer a new take on modern issues with some distance from them, allowing a clearer view through the decontextualization. The alienation, in quotes, is what makes it relatable in a way. That's why you see so many sci-fi works with political themes. Anyway, I think framing the Shadow Girls as aliens is part of the way that they are meant to give a clearer view on the episode through a change in context, alienating the viewer to offer understanding. Y'all are great, Rosemary. Okay, I fucking love this. <laughs> yep, nailed it. <laughs> yep. Yep. I really don't have like much commentary on this one except to say like, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Our last mail comes from Jackson and... Jackson has broken this up into several sections. <laughs> cool. This is a long one and I'm here for it. Okay. So I will break them up into sections also and just stick to the questions as they come. So, hi. First time sending fan mail to uh, any podcast. The ah uh, is in the, in the email. <laughs> Hell yeah. Thanks, Jackson. <laughs> um. First of all, thanks for watching, enjoying, and discussing my favorite piece of media ever. I've read some essays and junk, but it's just nice to hear real people talking about something that means so much to me. And now on to the meat. Do you guys have any more thoughts about Wakaba or Ruka? And there's a heart emoji <laughs> in this. Um, I love them both dearly. And I'll leave some of my ideas below. I don't expect you to read this all because it might be long. Nope. Challenge accepted. Um, so before we dive into the specific questions, Chesney, what are your thoughts on Wakaba and Ruka? Um, well, first of all, 
I want to say I've come around to your um, interpretation, Autumn, uh, that Wakaba is very reminiscent of our dear friend Carly. (laughs) 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 Which is not at all what Jackson is asking. I apologize. But I was just thinking about that in the last episode that we watched and how Wakaba acted. I was like, yeah, this is some shit Carly would do in college with me. (laughs) Um. But that being said, Wakaba is definitely one of my favorite characters in the show. Um, I love that she brings a much needed differing perspective um, and grounds both Utena and the viewer in their experience as just being teenagers. We talked about this in the last episode, but she really reminds everyone involved that, hey, we're just teenagers and we can have fun and this is the time to have fun in this way. And, you know, it just, it's such a refreshing perspective, especially, and I know that the creators used her in this way, especially when so much heaviness is going on. Um, If her tragedy is going to be such a heavy episode, I hope... Wakaba comes around to like maybe not in the ep- that episode but the one following or something uh, to give some refresher <laughs> on like hey it's gonna be okay friends or something like that but um, yeah anyway long story short I love Wakaba Ruka I definitely came around on um, when he first showed up I really thought that it was um stereotypical macho teen on campus trying to take back his crown type thing um i really thought he was just trying to throw his weight around um to get back his social standing and status um as the head of the fencing club and to just kind of be a like i i see that he had a crush on jury but man he really showed it in some weird ways <laughs> um because he was kind of an asshole to her in the beginning um yeah i really did not like him at first but i came around in the end um i feel like he really pulled out the like prince maneuver uh with his tragic death <laughs> of being like Hey, but I, I, I did all right in the end. You know, I pulled through for you in the end, and I did this for you. Blah blah blah. Um, so yeah, I begrudgingly liked Ruka in the end, but now I just have an overall positive feeling about him. <laughs> <laughs> now that I'm separated from the episode. <laughs> so, I mean, I've mentioned this before. I, I think of Wakaba very much in the same way I think of Naru from Sailor Moon. Yes. And I think it's refreshing that like Wakaba stays relevant for the entire series. So I think what happened to Naru scarred a lot of people. <laughs> um, like I, I think of like, since because you mentioned it last episode, um, Kill a Kill is still on my mind. Um, Mako from Kill a Kill is also one of those characters, like the best friend character who stays relevant literally the entire series. 
um, the opposite of Naru, uh, the same way that um, that Wakaba does. Um, as for Ruka, man, okay. So <laughs> Ruka is one of those characters that like I love and hate. Um, <laughs> part of it is that like he does a caring thing in an extremely dickish way. <laughs> <laughs> uh like like there is a selflessness to what he does and i hate that like jury's stubbornness is part of like what can be thought of as justifying how far he takes it all because like even everything he does isn't enough to snap her out of it you know like when you think like how far would you go to help a friend who is in an abusive relationship or actually, you know what? I think in this case, it might be more appropriate to say like, who's going through an addiction, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah. Um, Cause like, it's not even a, an abusive relationship. Jury and Shiori don't have one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a toxic relationship question mark. Yeah. <laughs> but like, the way she behaves around it is much closer to like addiction. Yeah. Um, and like, how far would you go to help a friend who's suffering like that? And so, yeah, sure. He does what he does in a way that is intensely informed by toxic masculinity. Yeah. Like we know that the way you help someone is to show up for them in the way they're, looking for and the way they need it to meet them where they're at as opposed to like pushing them through a gauntlet of bullshit that you create <laughs> or like kissing them kind of against their will mostly uh, against yeah, their will exactly stuff like that yeah um, like <laughs> it is all inflected through this toxic masculinity lens where like the only tools he has are the shitty behaviors he's been taught by other men yeah. And yet you can still see he's trying to help. Like you can see Ruka in another world with better role models could have been a genuinely better person. Oh yeah. That isn't the world we're in. This is the world where he pushes her against a wall and kisses her against her will yeah. and dates her object of affection in order to fuck with her. Like it comes from that same school <laughs> of thought of like, um, martial arts masters in fiction who are just trying to like provoke you to get mad <laughs> and yeah stuff like that um like it, it kind of only works in fiction and it feels like those are his role models and so he's trying to do that but since that doesn't work in real life and this show is a lot closer to that than it than it isn't like this show goes for realistic reactions to the stuff that happens. This, this is part of why I compare this show to um, Twin Peaks. Like Twin Peaks is a show where characters are allowed to have realistic human reactions to some truly outlandish bullshit that happens as opposed to the soap opera method of just rolling with it as if this is normal for this world. Uh, Jury has a very realistic reaction to this heightened only works in stories path that Ruka chooses for how to engage with her. 
she reacts very realistically of like, dude, get the fuck away from me. Knock it the fuck off. Stay away from Shiori. You know? Like, yeah. Also, like, <laughs> to your point of that would never work in real life. Yeah, because who... <laughs> I'm laughing because, like, who just runs up to you and is like, I'm dating your crush because I like you. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or I'm I'm dating your crush because I know she's not any good for you. Okay. Why are you dating her then? Yeah. Like <laughs> Is this like a grenade you're jumping on? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know she's abusive, so I'll take that abuse and let you go free. <laughs> uh, so anyway, um Jackson does have some real questions here. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Uh, also, just real quick, uh, the whole Ruka arc can just be summarized with the Shrek meme of somebody better be dying. I'm dying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not familiar with that meme. That one's completely lost on me. <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, awesome I don't someday. like Shrek. So oh my God. <laughs> I, I avoid Shrek memes also. Damn. <laughs> um. Okay, so back to Jackson. In my opinion, Revolutionary Girl Utena is just a convoluted discussion on what it means to be a prince. This prince is much like the one Machiavelli writes to in The Prince, and I'd be surprised if it wasn't an influence. Machiavelli writes that there is an ideal prince that one must maintain an image of, the prince who is selfless and noble and saves all the princesses, and then there is the real prince, the prince who is political and scheming and fucking horny. Of course, in our story, Utena embodies the I extreme ideal prince, and Akio embodies the extreme real prince. What kind of prince is Ruka? He's a womanizer and a jerk and a borderline sexual predator, but, he does but doesn't he act in the name of the ideal prince? He sacrifices himself and forsakes the world to compel Juri to cast off the chain she tightens around her own neck. Isn't he using his power for the sake of others? So I wish I had asked that question question like before the conversation we just had because i think like <laughs> that's exactly what we were talking about is like yeah. um yeah no he is working with only the tools that toxic masculinity has given him to do something that he thinks is genuinely kind um and naturally there are problems with that it's like the equivalent of that playground lesson of pulling the hair of the girl you like like that doesn't work, and I don't know how that rumor started, but boys teach it to other boys, and men teach it to boys, as if it's somehow true. And then women teach it to girls that when a boy does that, he likes you. And so the very first lesson about affection is, oh yeah, violations of your autonomy are how you show you like someone. <laughs> <laughs> and if that is the environment that Ruka comes from, which we know it is, because like the world is what it is, we can all look outside and see that sexism exists. Um, it's understandable that this is his course of action. And also, jury's response to it is completely appropriate. <laughs> yeah. I do want to say about the Machiavelli one, though, I love this reference. And this idea of like ideal versus real, because yeah, Akio's ruthless pragmatism 
is on display this entire show. I think that like, I w- like I want to put a pin in this and I hope I remember to do this. When we get to the end of the series, this question, I want to revisit this question because then Chesney, I think you will see more of what Jackson is talking about in this, in this letter. Um, also just as like a total aside, I think it's also like worth noting that the way Machiavelli wrote the prince was as kind of a middle finger to the people who kicked him out of his hometown. Oh. <laughs> and like, it's kind of an instruction manual that is um, backhandedly complimenting the person he's writing to. Like, it's supposed to be, see, you're doing this right because I see the wisdom in your bullshit actions. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the whole time, this is a diss track that the person doesn't realize is a diss track. <laughs> Like, you really shouldn't take this as a role model. Um, You shouldn't model your life after this the same way you shouldn't be modeling your life after Sun Tzu's Art of War, because it's kind of the same genre. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because Sun Tzu was writing to a bunch of ministers who didn't know the first thing about actual warfare because they'd never, like, actually picked up a weapon. But, like, he had to give them, like, the cliff notes of... Here's how you don't fuck up. <laughs> and now you get to act like you know everything about war. When trust me, a single soldier who has actually faced down an enemy knows more than anyone who has read the art of war. <laughs> <laughs> um, kind of the same deal with the prince. Um, which also, that layer of the prince makes the comparison to Akio and like the overall narrative arc of this show just like that much spicier i don't think anything else needs to be added i think you're good i think uh, that's good there we could probably just move on to the next question they have so jackson's next question uh, i think ruka is one of many princes in our story and absolutely none of them are paying any mind to the tragic wakaba wakaba i think is a girl who is cursed to be neither princess nor a witch Despite all her efforts to elevate herself into an important role in the story, she remains a satellite orbiting around Utena's brilliance until the very end of the show. What do you think of Wakaba's insignificance? Why do you think, after all the time she spends with Utena, she's still second place to the newcomer, Anthe? Is it because Utena doesn't understand the way she needs to be saved? Probably. Um, Utena has some level of main character syndrome where I don't think she can relate to Wakaba in that way. I think that was what made their Black Rose Saga fight so poignant um, and devastatingly beautiful. I mean, that fight was the one and has been the one that stuck with me out of every other one with how hard Wakaba fought and how defenseless Utena was to her. Um, and also, I hate to use this word, but yeah, kind of useless to um, to her wailings, you know? Um, 
I do agree with you, though, Autumn, in that, uh, you know, you've made this point a lot of like, Wakaba is not useless at all. Um, she is very much her own character, her own person, uh, has her own agency. And again, I would argue that she's just as important in this story because she does bring perspective that's so needed. And it goes beyond just like, oh, I bring the actual like teenager perspective. She brings an element of grounding to the story and to Utena that's needed. I feel like I got a little lost in the sauce there, so I don't even know if I answered the <laughs> question. <laughs> One of the things that Jackson's referencing here is a quote that we haven't reached yet, but there's a character in the show, and I won't say who, um, who makes the, the point that girls can either grow up to be princesses or witches. Mm. And, you know, like, that really typifies the um the lens of sexism that the show is viewing everyone through not saying that like the show itself is sexist in this way that like this is the lens they are pointing out that they're they're pointing to and saying this is how women are taught to see themselves in the west we have like the whole madonna whore complex mm -hmm. of you know you're either one or the other and this whole princess versus witch thing, um, it gets at this idea of either you are a woman with power or you are a woman who willingly gives up her power. So I, I see what you're saying about like her efforts to elevate herself to a more important role. Like she's always trying to date her way out of her status. Um, we see it with Sionji. We see it with the Onion Prince. We see it with Akio. Um, she sees men as a, a means of gaining power in the school. In that way, I think that Wakaba as a character represents the patriarchal bargain, mm -hmm. which is uh, women who sacrifice their own power to some degree in order to be, quote unquote, the good one or the cool girl who... Um, goes along with patriarchy in order to gain the benefit of protection by some powerful man. Um, you know, these, when you engage in the patriarchal bargain, you often then actively engage in suppressing other women, which isn't really something that we see from Wakaba. Uh, we kind of get a taste of it with her, like cutting in on, um, Utena's date with Akio and like we discussed the issues with that last episode but like the act of doing that the idea that she needs to elevate herself by stealing Akio um, not strictly sexism in that way like she's not putting Utena down as like a sexist thing but it is introducing this idea of um competing with other women for a limited resource akio's attention as though akio's attention is the true source of power here not their own efforts not their own desires not their own personal development and growth so wakaba has this like frame of mind 
in which she's viewing the world. And I think that's what traps her. And I think that's what keeps her in second place is her own refusal to acknowledge any of her own gifts. Uh, she doesn't try to be the best version of herself. She tries to be the best number two to a man. And that keeps failing. But like, that's her entire focus. Like when we see her taking active agency, it is always toward that end. Um, and I'm with you, Chesney. Like that fight in the Black Rose saga is gut-wrenching because in it, Utena admits she doesn't understand why Wakaba is angry. Mm -hmm. And they never have that conversation. Wakaba tells her why she's angry. And Utena just doesn't hear it. The fact that they stayed friends after that is actually a little stunning to me. <laughs> like, yes, Wakaba said it while under the influence of the Black Rose, but it was true. Like, I made this point, I think, in that episode. When you drink alcohol, the alcohol doesn't give you ideas that you don't already have. It may make you say things that your better judgment would keep you silent on. But if she's saying this, it means there was a part of her that always felt it. The, the Black Rose didn't make her feel that. Right. Right. And the fact that Utena hears it, and then it just like washes over her without landing. Again, like it shocks me that they stayed friends after that. Um, but I think that alone speaks to, um, I think Wakaba choosing in the parlance of this show that like princess path of sacrificing her own power. Like she doesn't have the strength of will or the, um, the self-confidence to take what Utena says in that moment, recognize this means that Utena will never be as close of a friend as I need. There is a breach of intimacy here that is too great to, to bridge unless Utena starts making some serious efforts. And the fact that she sees this and chooses to stay friends with Utena speaks to that lack of self-confidence. Like yeah. I, I feel like Wakaba can find a better friend at Otori. And on some level, this is where I think the, the shipping comes in of these two characters. Because like part of that also makes more sense if Wakaba does have a crush on Utena. Mm-hmm. Um, I've talked a lot about how I think that Wakaba is the straightest character on the show. <laughs> <laughs> but I think like the staying to be further like marginalized by Utena and to stay in her shadow um, gives Wakaba a lot of like, I want to fuck her. I want to be her energy. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, to your point though, and then talking about in the context of the, um, analogy of princess versus witch. If Utena is emulating a prince, of course she would want to be around her, even after that fight. Because, yes, they are friends, but then also she is the closest thing to that power. So maybe that's like Wakaba's subconscious driving them, driving her at least to stay together too. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. Whether or not she wants to be her fucker <laughs> or uh, just be with her, be next to her uh, in some capacity. 
it also makes me sad because, again, uh, Wakaba has her own power, like you said, and she is just not owning it. But her power to me is precisely that she's not a princess or a witch or, uh, you know, there's like the maid mother crone. There's all types of archetypes, but she's just her. She doesn't have to participate in this game that's been laid out in the school. And I think that that's probably the biggest and strongest power that there is, is the power to leave when you want to leave. Yeah, for sure. So finally, um, Jackson says, okay, thanks for keeping this show alive, guys. I'm looking forward to the movie reaction, especially how well you think the new paint job on Utena, I don't know how to say this without spoilers, uh, conveys the relationship that the series spent like four arcs building. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, bye. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, Jackson. Yeah, thanks so much. Give us a lot to think about. Also, now my brain is just chanting, movie, movie, movie. We have like eight more episodes to go, and then we'll have the movie. We will get there. (laughs) Oh, I know, I know, I know. So that is our mailbag episode. Uh, Thank you for listening. If you have comments that you want to send in, you can send them to us at absolutedestinyapodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Zetai Unme Pod. I'm also individually on Twitter. I'm at Life in Neon. And I'm on Twitter, Twitch, and TikTok as Car Cutie. Um, and right now, specifically, this has absolutely nothing to, to do with the mailbag episode, but or Utena. But I'm going through uh, Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines um, on Twitch right now, and it is a lot of fun. So you can always feel free to come and hang out. Also, I'm repeating the request from last episode. Please send us your fanfic of the Amsterdam Sister School of Otori. I want to know what those European students are up to and what trauma they're going through. (laughs) (laughs) But next episode, we will be doing her tragedy. For fans of the series, you know what that means. Buckle up. Skip it if you need to. Um, It's about to get heavy. And we will see you next time. Bye.